welcome to the um, special session of the Southern Alberta Council of Public Affairs. I'm your moderator this evening, Tom Kane. I'm on the SACPA board. We have some announcements. We wouldn't let just Quentin get started. You know, we've got to count on a few people coming in at the last minute. So a couple of announcements. Um, SACPA, I'll remind you, is a volunteer nonprofit organization. And um, find out that that's, so is uh, Pollution Probe. It relies on the contributions of members and session attendees to continue its work, so we will pass a contribution pail. Those pails will be going around later, and you're to drop something quiet into the pails, is the suggestion. But I, we're not turned down toonies and loonies either, though. You know, like if that's what you got in your pocket and you don't have any bills to give us, then we'll take what you give us. Um, we acknowledge our partners. We thank the Lethbridge Public Library for making it possible to host some of our special sessions here at the library. It's centrally located, and everybody knows how to find the place and park and all. The University of Lethbridge, for their support, including the distribution of all the notices you get in the mail if you're a regular attendee at SACPA. Our format this evening is we'll begin with a 45, 50-minute presentation, and I understand that Quentin could talk for hours on this topic, so we're going to have to hold him to 45 or 50 minutes. Um, then we're going to have a 10, 15-minute break, and a question period will commence about 8 o'clock. Um, our topic this evening is responding to climate change, adaptation as the emerging frontier. And with the publication of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Assessment Report 4 in 2007, the scientific view regarding the causes and consequences of climate change has never been stronger. There's little doubt that climate change is real. And other speakers have said recently, you know, it's not really climate change, it's global warming. Two degrees will do us in. So um, it's real, it's happening, and adaptation to some degree of climate change is necessary. The presentation discusses the role of adaptation as the emerging frontier for responding to climate change. It draws on two national assessments, one led by the Natural Resources Canada and another by Health Canada, that have assessed the current state of knowledge about climate change, uh, their impacts, the vulnerability of our social and natural systems, and the capacity of these systems to adapt across regions and in the context of human health. The presentation concludes by outlining a pathway forward towards the development of a regional and or national adaptation plan. Our speaker tonight is Quentin um, Chiotti, rather, pardon me, I'm practicing it the wrong way today and then I checked with him and so it's Chiotti. Um, he is the, was recently appointed in 19, uh, 2007 the Climate Change Program Director at Pollution Probe and he's also their senior scientist. So that's pretty prestigious to have you here. We're welcome. We're really pleased you are here. Um, I went into the website for um, Pollution Probe today, and I thought I'd better hone up a little bit on what Pollution Probe is all about, and I was very impressed. I knew that Pollution Probe had done a lot of things over the last so many years, but when I got into the website and looked at 30 years of success stories and struggles, I knew that um, I'm... I'm playing catch-up and being concerned about climate change. Um, Pollution Probe's a Canadian charitable environmental organization. At times we thought you were so close to government or at least cooperating so well with government that maybe you're a government organization. That's maybe the impression that's out there. But no, that's not true. And there are three main tenets to Pollution Probe. Defines environmental problems through research. Promotes understanding through education and presses for practical solutions through advocacy. And that's something at SACPA we stand back a little bit of, and we try and just present the ideas. Um, I like what you do <laughs> as an activist myself. It's tough to just stop at presenting the ideas. Um, Quentin has a PhD in geography from the University of Western Ontario, has worked extensively in the area of climate change since 1993 including working for the Adaptation and Impacts Research Group of the Meteorological Service of Canada, Environmental, Environment Canada, 1995 to 2002. And then, more recently, from 1998 to 2002, he was a scientific authority for, an environment, for Environment Canada, led a multi-stakeholder study on atmospheric change in the Toronto-Niagara region, 
And during this period, he split his time between Environment Canada and a Pollution Probe before joining Pollution Probe full-time as the Program Director and Senior Scientist in uh, the Air Program Director. And now that's changed, right? It's climate change? Okay. Do both, but you've got the title for climate change. And the Senior Scientist. Um, Dr. Chiotti has published over 45 articles in scholarly journals and books. I'm not going to read all of those. Um, was a contributor to the Canadian Country Study, the first national assessment on climate change impacts and adaptation, and he is the co-lead author of the Ontario chapter to that report from Impacts to Adaptation, Canada in a Changing Climate, 2007, led by Natural Resources Canada. Would you please give a warm welcome to Quentin? Great. Thanks for that uh, intro. I, I just wanted to add to it that um, and acknowledge Tom Johnston, who's a professor in geography at the University of Lethbridge, is the one who dragged me out to um, Alberta to work on a climate change project. And speaking of which, my research assistant at the time just walked in and is sitting at the back, um, in which we were looking at climate change uh, and agricultural um, sustainability in Alberta. And by starting that pathway on climate change impacts adaptation research in 1993, it has led me back here in 2009. And it's sort of a circuitous journey that brought me through Environment Canada, through various universities, and also through Pollution Probe. And I'm really happy to be back in uh, southern LA uh, to, uh, to give this, uh, this talk. And, I was thinking that, boy, this winter has been bitterly cold from coast to coast. And I, I remember flying over uh, to Calgary in December, at the end of December, beginning of January, and noticing that this was the first winter in, I think, 30 years that we had snow from coast to coast. And how talking about climate change was probably going to go over like a lead balloon anywhere, let alone southern Alberta. Um, so that being said, I'm here to talk about adaptation as the emergence, emerging frontier and what I'd like to do very quickly in the 45 minutes that I've got uh, is try to do the impossible and shower you with 60 slides. So there will not be a quiz at the end of the uh, presentation, um, but I do look forward to the Q&A period that we'll, we have after the break. Um, essentially, my primary argument is that climate change is real. It's happening already, and that if you look at some of the challenges we're facing globally in terms of reducing our emissions and avoiding climate change from occurring. My uh, professional and personal opinion um, is that we will not be successful in doing so, not because we don't have the technologies or the means, because we neither have the polit political will, will or um, for other reasons for not being able to do so. And that as a result, uh, climate change, according to um, various measures of climate change, is inevitable and hence adaptation is something we really need to look at, although to be fair, um, I would argue that we need to still do much more on mitigation on emission reduction uh, and that adaptation is no excuse uh, for not trying our best to reduce our emissions. Um, it was mentioned, uh, thanks for that introduction, uh, Pollution Probe is actually 40 years old. It's older than Environment Canada and the Ministry of the Environment in Ontario. This is a photograph that's quite cherished by the organization from our origins at the University of Toronto in 1969 tree in High Park, of which I'd really like to see um, updated uh, with our current staff of 20 uh, uh, before we celebrate our 40th birthday at our annual gala in November. So if you're in Toronto and interested in coming to our gala, that's our fundraiser, and it's a, a very effective way of, of raising our profile and uh, raising resources. Uh, it was mentioned in terms of our uh, key um, uh, objectives and approaches in, in terms of uh, not-for-profit organization. I think it's important for you to recognize that not all environmental groups are created equal. Uh, we do have those more on the advocacy side, such as Greenpeace, those on conservation, such as the World Wildlife Fund, and others. Perhaps best are Pembina Institute based in Calgary and Edmonton and Pollution Probe in Toronto that are more science policy based than any other organization in the country. 
And it seems to me that in the absence of real concerted action on dealing with the climate change issue, that our role uh, becomes even more important. Now, some of the things that Pollution Probe has done, we do a number of national workshop series. We've done enforced carbon management in water, in green power, and children's health. We've led a number of initiatives, such as the Great Lakes Roundtable, Commission reports, which I'll return to later in this presentation, on mainstreaming climate change and drinking water source protection planning in Ontario. That has been on the forefront of source water protection planning in Canada. And as mentioned, uh, which I'm actually not going to speak about in any great length, I sort of, after um, writing my abstract, decided that it was probably best to focus more on the Natural Resources Canada National Assessment and the Prairie Chapter rather than delve into human health and a changing climate, the report led by Health Canada, which unfortunately doesn't quite deal specifically with health issues in Alberta to the extent that the NRCAN report deals with it on a regional basis. But I was a contributing author to the Health Canada report nonetheless, which just demonstrates again the kind of science work that um, I do and Pollution Probe has contributed to. Perhaps best of all, uh, we're quite well known for our primer series, which is essentially our educational and outreach activities. And I would encourage you to check out for free and download them. We have a collection of 11 primers. We're working on a 12th and 13th one on the Great Lakes and on the automobile. And let's talk about strange bedfellows. We recently had a report out, I think a couple of years ago, um, looking at an eco-mobility strategy between the Canadian Automobile Association and Pollution Probe. And we were so successful in that, it certainly raised eyebrows in Ottawa and NRCAN and elsewhere, saying, how the heck did an environmental group and an auto association find common ground? And it just goes to demonstrate that if you committed and you're willing to listen and learn from others, you can actually find a lot of common ground. Um, so what I'd like to do in the uh, talk this evening is to make the case that when you look at the scientific evidence on climate change, demands an urgent call to action, uh, more so on the mitigation side, but ultimately on the adaptation side. That there's a certain inevitability of climate change that is already happening in most parts of Canada, and that when we look at the national assessment reports, specifically the one from NRCAN, on climate change impacts in Canada and more specifically on the prairies, uh, that there are a lot of adaptation challenges that we face. Um, and then in terms of the need to enhance adaptive capacity, I'll give you some personal lessons from Ontario and moving forward on a regional and national adaptation strategy, uh, but certainly applies here in the prairies as well. Now, when we're dealing with uh, the challenge of responding to climate change, I find actually when you go out in the community such as tonight and you talk to uh, farmers, you talk to uh, water resource managers, you talk to municipal decision makers, there's often either a certain degree of confusion or a lack of interest in separating uh, responses to climate change between adapting to impacts or changes in temperature and precipitation and extreme weather and doing what we can to reduce our carbon footprint that is causing uh, the problem in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And in fact, in one of my roles as a member of the Ontario Expert Panel on Climate Adaptation to advise Minister Gerritsen, who's the Environment Minister in Ontario, uh, as well as Premier McGuinty, I've generally found by listening to a variety of deputy ministers and assistant deputy ministers from across all ministries in the province I'd have to say that the understanding of adaptation is highly, highly uneven and variable. That generally people think about adaptation and when they're asked to define it, as saying I'm interested in adapting to a carbon-constrained future instead of dealing with adapting to changes in temperature and precipitation and extreme events. And at a public meeting I had the pleasure of attending held by the City of Toronto back in uh, June of last year, they actually gave a detailed presentation on adaptation then they asked an audience like this to sit around round tables and identify their priorities for adaptation. And the ones that came from both tables was, we got to do more about getting people out of their cars and improving air quality. And I was sitting in this little banging my head against the table saying, you don't get it. You're not dealing with air pollution. We're not dealing with emission reduction. 
We're dealing with adapting our, our um, infrastructure, our design standards, our agricultural practices to accommodate and hopefully reduce the severe impacts that are projected from climate change. So in the context of impacts and adaptation, it's really important when we're looking at regions, we're looking at ecosystems, whether or not they're unmanaged or managed, sectors or vulnerable groups of society, such as seniors and children in particular, to understand the dimensions of vulnerability as well as the factors that can help improve or enhance adaptive capacity. Now, just to give you a little bit of the science, we know that carbon dioxide has been rising significantly since the pre-industrial period, and we're basically now looking at uh, levels unprecedented in terms of, of uh, Earth's geological history, and that the increase in CO2 in the atmosphere is actually much higher uh, in the last uh, decade than it has been when I was born. I quite like this graph, lower one on the right, because I was born in 1958, and it sort of indicates the lifestyle and the um, benefits that I've experienced in my life are often uh, illustrated and driven by the global increase in concentration levels of CO2 in the atmosphere. So we're at pre-industrial levels, we're about 275. We're quite concerned about the implications of reaching a doubling of CO2 in the atmosphere. We're currently at about 380 for carbon dioxide, and if you throw in nitrous oxide and methane and some of the other highly potent uh, greenhouse gases and look at the CO2 equivalency, we're probably at about 430. So I would say we're not that far off in terms of reaching that uh, doubling magical uh, level. Uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 2007 had come up with their most conclusive or strongest uh, statement yet in terms of the four assessment reports produced since 1990. In this case, warming of the climate system is unequivocal, as is now evident from observations of increases in global average air and ocean temperatures, widespread melting of snow and ice, and rising global sea level, mean sea level. Uh, they also mention glacial retreat, which um, brings me to how I spent my summer vacation in July 2007. And I'm going to ask the audience from southern Alberta, who I'm sure knows the Rockies like the back of their hand, uh, what mountain peak this is from. No, Tom, I gave this lecture. I showed this slide in your class. Your, everyone but Tom. And Kelly, who was also there in the uh, talk. So, no one? Well, it's interesting because I've given variations of this talk or this particular slide. I've, I've shown at, no, good, good guess. I've shown at West, University of Western Ontario, uh, University of Toronto, York University, McMaster University, and only one um, uh, geology professor, um, Chris Smart from the University of Western Ontario, got it. It's Mount Edith Cavell, uh, which I know quite well because a good friend of mine, uh, Catherine Pickles, is a feminist geographer at the University of Canterbury, Canterbury in Christchurch and wrote a book, which I'm acknowledged for sending their postcards and things about Mount Edith Cavell over the years. As you know, there is a nursing home in Lethbridge named after the good nurse, as well as a mountain in Jasper. Uh, and this is Ghost or Angel Glacier from a postcard I picked up on eBay from the 1940s and a photograph of the glacier in 2007 when I was there last. And I think without doing some sort of a pixel analysis on comparing the two images, suffice to say that there has been noticeable glacial retreat. But this is somewhat of an anecdotal evidence. As we know, it's much more real, much more serious in many parts of the world. In fact, the IPCC had essentially indicated that it's occurring in every single mountain range in the planet in terms of severe glacial retreat. The IPCC reports, I think, are fairly uh, conclusive, and I really refuse to get into any debate over the science of climate uh, change. I no longer participate in... Um, certain broadcasting uh, companies in terms of their radio programs on debating climate change. Friends of mine who were part of the IPC process are absolutely convinced that the debate is over and that I think we really need to move on and accept that the consensus that climate change is real and is already happening and allows us the freedom and the clarity of thought to start asking the more relevant and fundamental questions such as how much warming will there be and how rapid 
will climate change? And those two issues are much more uh, difficult to address and much more challenging in terms of developing an adaptation response. Um, you've probably seen this before in terms of uh, what the changes in um, historical temperature record is and where it's likely to go based upon different scenarios of emissions and energy intensity, energy use, population, and the economy that we're probably looking at, whoops, um, somewhere in the neighborhood of about three degrees change in global temperatures by the middle to the end of this century, uh, probably somewhere in the ballpark of between two and a half and four, uh, four and a half depending upon how things materialize. Um, the costs of climate change are going to be quite extensive, uh, particularly if you look at the costs of impacts, the costs of doing nothing. And it was Nicholas Stern, uh, the famous um, uh, respected British economist who wrote the review of the economics of climate change. He did some creative accounting in terms of discount rates that I won't go into, but generally he summed up the cost of impacts would be the equivalent, I think it was, of World War I, the Depression, World War II, all wars since then. I don't think he took into account or could forecast the 2008-2009 uh, meltdown, but um, I'm sure if he had the foresight to do so, he would have included it. But the review estimates the annual cost of stabilization of CO2 to be only around 1% of GDP by 2050, a level that is significant but manageable, and is certainly consistent with all national assessments that have been done either in Canada and the U.S. over the last decade or so as we've been debating and sitting on our butts about doing something about climate change. All the studies have said the cost of achieving emission reductions would be about 1%, 2% of GDP annually, and you compare that to the business-as-usual emissions of GHGs in terms of leading to impacts, and the cost of those impacts would be a minimum damage, whoops, always a spelling error, of 5% of GDP and could be as high as 20% uh, in, in the future. And so when you start trading those things off, the cost of doing nothing really become a bad option. Or, sorry, the uh, option of doing nothing becomes a bad option. Um, it's often forgotten in a lot of the debate around Kyoto and whether or not Canada should or could achieve its emission uh, targets um, is the fact that we are a signatory, and of all people, Prime Minister Mulroney, who uh, received a uh, Greenest Prime Minister Award a couple of years ago, which Pollution Probe was part of uh, in awarding, um, for he signed on to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change in 1992, which commits Canada to the stabilization of greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere at a level that would prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. And if you consider dangerous, and that's really the, the debate out there in terms of what really constitutes dangerous interference, uh, are we really looking at a level of CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere? Are we looking at uh, actual changes in average temperatures? Um, so we're looking at uh, change in temperatures, the stabilization of CO2 at what level. The European Union, as well as the IPCC and most other um, science bodies, have chosen two degrees global warming as what constitutes dangerous level. When That means when we're in serious trouble in terms of our global climate system. And relative to the historical change since about the 1850s of uh, 0 0.7 uh, degrees globally, that's only 1.3 degrees more warming. So we're already well on our way to achieving that two degrees C. And again, if you think back to that diagram where we're looking at CO2 concentration levels going up much higher than it was when I was, uh, when I was born, um, we're going to achieve that 1.3 degrees in a much shorter period than the last 150 years to achieve that 0.7 degree change. If we're looking at pathways towards stabilization, and this is right out of the IPCC uh, fourth assessment report um, deck that is available on their website, I just bring to your attention at the very top, looking at the stabilization level that would be required to avoid dangerous interference with the global climate system. That would be 2 to 2.4 degrees in the second column, somewhere in the neighborhood of 445 or 490 uh, parts per million for CO2 equivalency, 
That basically means that we're looking to peak our global emissions of CO2 in the atmosphere no later than 2015, which is only six years away. And that we would need to reduce our emissions back below 1990, or sorry, 2000 levels uh, by 2030. And that the reductions in 2050 that would be uh, required to also achieve those reductions um, and those levels would be in the neighborhood of 50 to 85 percent. And in a North American context, I would challenge that and suggest that Canada and the U.S. need to reduce their emissions closer to that 85 percent mark as you consider the challenges faced by India and China and other emerging countries in terms of the emissions that they will need to reduce. So if we go beyond that 445 to 490 level, go beyond that two degrees, we are entering into dangerous territory in terms of the implications of climate change and the impacts. Virtually all that I'll describe today in my talk or this evening is based upon a doubling of CO2 in the atmosphere. That is in the neighborhood of 550 parts per million. We really don't delve into a tripling or quadrupling of CO2 very few studies have done that to date. Now, there's no doubt that the challenges in Canada are severe and, and real. Uh, we are looking right now at a situation where we're about 45% our Kyoto commit, commitment targets, uh, about 257 megatons by 2010. Uh, we have a long way to go in terms of reducing our emissions. The federal government, after years of liberal inaction, uh, the Conservatives had opted or attempted to take a very proactive approach and actually achieve real emission reductions through the release of the regulatory framework for air emissions in April 2007. Um, just some of the major components of the proposed framework, some severe problems uh, from an environmental group perspective. Greenhouse gases for industry, particularly for the oil sands, are intensity-based. Uh, essentially, there are no hard caps for emissions. Uh, and in essence, if you look at the oil sands, they are to, uh, allowed to increase their emissions by 18% um, by 2012, followed by a 2% annual improvement until 2015 when it will be reviewed. Um, sorry, reduce, I think it was reduce their targets by 18% and then 2% annually. And in essence, means that they can continue to uh, increase their uh, production and as long as they're using um, energy more effectively and more efficiently, uh, emissions can continue to rise. There is an overall national target, but it's really not a, a target in an um, enforceable way of 20% below 2006 levels by 2020 and much longer-term targets of 60 to 70% by 2050. And it's interesting when you consider the National Roundtable on the Environment and the Economy when they looked at the federal framework, they felt there was no basis in the report to justify that Canada could, in fact, achieve its 20 percent below 2006 level target and virtually nothing in the uh, framework to give us any kind of a blueprint or plan to reach our emission targets by 2050. And then from a financial perspective, in the federal government's own words, the cost of reaching these reductions would not exceed 0.5% of the GDP in any given year up until 2020. Now, what we have on the uh, top in, in red are the projections without any kind of initiatives to reduce our emissions. In yellow, what the federal regulatory target, if it was achieved, which I've already or just said that is probably not achievable. Um, and then in green, what the IPCC, the European Union, and others uh, the climate scientists feel is a consensus of what's needed in Canada and in the U.S. and Japan and other developed countries, including the EU, to reduce their emissions of greenhouse gases by 30 percent below 1990 levels by 2020. So that yellow line in the middle, the federal government target, assuming that we are capable of achieving it, is still far higher than what the climate sciences basically are, are articulating and arguing. So if you look at uh, as well as what may happen south of the border, and I am encouraged, of course, by the change in political winds in the U.S. in terms of 
President Obama relative to George W. Bush. And as my American colleagues have often said, well, you, you can't get any worse in terms of a new, uh, a new uh, president, that even if there was some acceptance of what was then, back in, I think, 2006, 2007, uh, the best case bill, uh, the Lieberman-Warner bill uh, that would be approved by Congress, um, essentially follows very similar pathway to the Canadian uh, Conservative government's federal regulatory framework, essentially uh, committing the U.S. to a 60% reduction target below 2005 by the year 2050. So, again, if that's what does happen, and I have uh, no way of, uh, of thinking or no basis to think that Obama will do anything more significant, although I'm hopeful he will, that together with Canada, the fact that the U.S. and Canada contribute 27 percent of global emissions, and they both have targets that are essentially 60 percent below 2005-2006, when the science is saying we need 85 percent below 1990 levels by 2050, I would argue that both fall far short of what the science-based estimated reductions are needed to avoid dangerous interference with the global climate system. So that is our reality in the best-case scenario as is currently um, being discussed from a policy perspective. So one of the things that has emerged in recent um, uh, visits by uh, President Obama to uh, Ottawa recently, discussions with uh, Prime Minister Harper, is something that is likely going to get great angst in this part of the country in terms of do we need a national uh, or rather a North American energy strategy. And it seems to me without any allegiance to Alberta or Ontario or plain politics in any way, shape, or form, Logic dictates if we're going to solve this problem collectively, we have to have a North American energy strategy. So I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here uh, insofar as this is something that has been recognized by Harper, it has been recognized by uh, Obama, and has been said to me in private by very senior uh, members of some of the oil companies, and they get it, they know it's coming, um, what that might entail, what that might look at. And I think we're likely going to be focusing, obviously, on the future of the oil sands and looking at technology such as carbon capture and storage as its uh, silver bullet in terms of being able to reduce its carbon footprint. And I'm not particularly sold on carbon capture and storage insofar as I don't think it's yet proven technology. Um, electricity and fossil fuels, especially in Ontario, when it comes to our coal plants, although to be fair to Ontario, we are committed to closing our coal plants by the year 2014. We're looking at clean coal. We're looking at natural gas, renewables, or heaven forbid, nuclear, which many uh, walks of life still consider to be a viable option, or those that are of more green nature advocating energy efficiency and conservation and uh, renewables, as I probably should have included it there as um, uh, the route forward. But I think as well, what we also need to take into account is transportation and to look at fuel economy and fuel economy standards to deal with the urban sprawl and our love of single occupant vehicles and also in a much more challenging way of dealing with the emissions caused by our goods and freight movement and particularly just-in-time delivery that are on the backs of trucks rather than factories and warehouses across the country and North America. And if we look at what those emission challenges are and what are the spatial dimensions, obviously Ontario and Alberta are the ones that have the highest um, uh, amounts of greenhouse gases, the highest increases in greenhouse gases from 1990 to 2003. So we know from a spatial and regional perspective where the problem lies. And it lies in Alberta largely because of the oil sands and it lies in Ontario largely because of industry, because of transportation, and because of uh, fossil fuel, coal-burning uh, electricity generation. And just to look at it on a sectoral basis, right at the top, electricity and fossil fuels uh, increasing by 86 megatons from 1990 to 2004, transportation increasing by 40 megatons between 1990 to 2004, 
And for those of you who think we can just stick it to industry, and believe me, there are a lot of environmentalists who think this is the way to go, I'll tell you right now, it ain't going to work. And that, in fact, in Ontario, the manufacturing share of greenhouse gases is the only sector which has seen a decline uh, relative to all other sectors. Why? Because of some improvements in energy use and energy intensity, but also because of a wholesale loss of jobs and contraction in the manufacturing sector. So it's great um, for those who are uh, anti-industry to say, all right, let's GM uh, go the way of the buffalo, and we can get into a separate debate over that. I'm not in favor of bailing them out. But that being said, um, even if they do, uh, the only positive things will be likely a slight reduction in GHGs. But really, when it comes to manufacturing, the auto sector's real problem is in transportation itself and the vehicles that you and I drive and the goods and freight that's moved that gives us, gives us the things that we enjoy. Now, the National Roundtable had come up with their own estimate of whether or not, or, or rather, what it would take to achieve the federal framework targets of 50%, 60% below 2005 levels by 20, 60% uh, uh, below 2005 levels by 2050. And you'll see there uh, from the bottom up the target of about 250, 300 megatons by 2050. You've got carbon capture and storage, nuclear, biofuels, and alternative fuels, renewable electricity, et cetera, et cetera, in red, energy intensity in blue. Um, that we have real serious challenges in terms of achieving those reductions. They are possible, and if you go through the report and the analysis, the very brief analysis of what measures are required and what it would take, um, it's certainly achievable, but arguably uh, not likely to happen for a variety of, of, of market and um, political reasons. Um, I think it's important to not just isolate the oil sands and single them out. I heard some uh, debates from Western Canada about that issue a couple of weeks ago in, in the aftermath of President Obama's visit to uh, Ottawa, and I thought I couldn't agree more that from an Ontario perspective, if you look at the coal plants and the contribution it makes to air pollution, we have to deal with the coal plant issue in the United States. And unless we deal with that alongside the oil sands in a North American energy strategy, we're not going to solve the climate change issue. What about automobiles? And this is where, Tom, we were chatting earlier about the auto sector. Well, on the left looks at greenhouse gas emissions that would be necessary in Canada in order to achieve the 2020 target of a 20% below 2005 levels uh, by 2020 for Canada and what would be required in terms of the emissions from light trucks in purple to cars in blue. And on the right, looking at new cars in blue and the fleet, that's all the vehicles uh, across the board, of the improvements in fuel economy that would be required. New cars on the top, new trucks on the bottom. And in essence, we would need to go from an average for cars of about 8 litres per 100 kilometres to about 2 litres per 100 kilometres in the next seven years. And that we would need to go for our trucks, and those of us who are driving SUVs or light trucks, to go from about 10 litres per 100 kilometres to about... Uh, again, three liters per 100 kilometers. Do you really think we're going to do that? There was nothing in the GM submission, Chrysler submission to Washington or Ottawa that outlined how they were going to improve, improve the fuel economy of their vehicles. We also have an issue of sprawl, and it's just not here in Toronto, where we're likely to see an increase of 3 million people and a 42% increase and GHG emissions from vehicles, you could superimpose Calgary upon this, Edmonton upon this, and virtually find the same kind of challenge. So I would argue that there's a certain inevitability of climate change, as much as I would like to be up here and suggest otherwise, as Bob Watson, who was then chair of the IPCC, to the conference of the party delegates at The Hague in November 2000, said the question is not whether climate will change, but rather how much, how fast, and where. 
and the Stern report that basically said what we do now can have only a limited effect on the climate over the next 40 or 50 years. On the other hand, what we do in the next 10 or 20 years can have a profound effect on the climate in the second half of this century and in the next. So you put all of these together, and I would say our window, again, is really only 10 to 15 years. Adaptation is absolutely essential to deal with the inevitability of climate change. Much more mitigation is needed. And in sort of a, a side commentary in the grand scheme of things, I'd basically say we're screwed. But uh, let's try to talk more proactively and present a more positive uh, perspective on what the future may bring. Now, I'm often asked, how do you remain optimistic about talking about climate change? I say, well, it's easy. I'm a Maple Leaf fan. <laughs> Every October, I buff up my lawn chair. And I fully expect the Leafs will have that parade down Young Street in June. And by Christmas, I fold it up and I take my sweater off and I pack it away. And Anyway, two national assessment reports on the left from impacts to adaptation, Canada and changing climate. I'll just bring to your attention that the assessment is not policy prescriptive. There is nothing in the assessment that will tell you what you should be doing. But it is policy relevant so that it gives the likes of me, who are much more difficult to control from a speaking perspective, to say what we want and what needs to be done rather than as a government document. And trust me, in this government and climate, you cannot have a document that's policy prescriptive. A number of different elements to the national report that I just bring to your attention. 145 authors from governments, universities, and angles across the country released on March 7th. And I asked Tom's class earlier today just to think about if you were journalists. In fact, I raised this with a uh, reporter from the Lethbridge Herald this afternoon. If you wanted to ensure the lowest radar release of a report, if you're a member of the cabinet or government, when would you release that report? This was released on March, Friday, March 7th, 5.12 p.m. on the Friday before March break in Ontario. And a $250,000 communication strategy was quietly um, paid off and ignored. Uh, the Health Canada report was released on uh, July 30th, which was a Thursday at 4 p.m. in PDF format, emailed to a select few, myself included. Uh, it's still not available online in HTML format, although I've been told that release is imminent. It is available, nonetheless, on someone's blog. Um, don't get me started. <laughs> Key findings of the report, Canada's climate is changing and impacts uh, whoops, uh, are, uh, changing climate already evident in every region of the country. Climate change will exacerbate many current climate risks, and adaptive capacity is unevenly distributed between and within regions and populations. Um, to date, most adaptation that has occurred tends to be more reactive rather than anticipatory, and we really, really need to be thinking about adaptation from the perspective of being much more planned and much more proactive particularly in terms of the long term. There are issues of vulnerability that we still need a lot of research to determine. Uh, and then in, from the perspective of adaptive capacity, understanding the role of governments and institutions uh, in order to help that along. Why adaptation? There are a lot of reasons uh, why I could make the case for adaptation. But I'll just try to focus on the last point, the strength and long-term competitiveness to enhance regional competitiveness uh, here in, let's say, southern Alberta relative to other agri-food uh, areas across uh, North America, pardon me, and the opportunity in some cases, such as irrigation technologies or um, water quality uh, treatments, an opportunity to showcase and export new technologies developed in Canada abroad. So there are lots of good rationales and try to present a more positive focus on this talk of saying there's a strong economic driver for us to invest in adaptation and to do so in a way that enhances our competitiveness. Impacts of climate change are already evident in every region of Canada in terms of permafrost, 
reduce glacial cover, as I mentioned earlier, lower lake levels and the like. They're going to exacerbate current climate risks uh, from reduced water quality and quantity in parts of the country such as where I am in Ontario, increased heat waves in parts of Alberta and the boreal forest, increased risk of forest fires, as well as present new risks and opportunities. And what's interesting about the national assessment, even though opportunities are not well documented, there's an overwhelming view that the risks from climate change will be far greater than any opportunities that will occur, particularly for crops and tree species. Fortunately, some adaptation is occurring in Canada, both in response to and in anticipation of climate change impacts. And more specifically, in terms of the prairies, I'd like to finish off my talk by just uh, addressing some of the key findings from this report and would encourage you to either, if you haven't already, uh, re-invite um, Jim Byrne, who's in the audience today from the University of Lethbridge, who is a contributing author, or their lead authors, Dave Sochan uh, and Shuren. I'm not going to attempt Shuren's last name. If you had a difficult time with mine, I always have a hard one. Jim, is it um, Kaltretha? Thank you. Um, and uh, have both of them come out and actually give you a more detailed uh, interpretation of their prairie chapter. Um, and a number of contributing authors, many who I've worked before, including Jim, a number of years ago. So I just wanted to highlight with your approval, Jim, and if I screw up on anything, just let me know, uh, some of the key features of the chapter's uh, findings. That, in fact, when you look at Al uh, Alberta, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan, there are some evidence, as there was in Ontario, of changes or increases in temperature, in this case 1.6 degrees. Spring, not surprisingly, or in some cases um, uh, on a regional basis, it's likely more in the winter, but spring shows the greatest warming, a trend that extends from Manitoba to northern British Columbia. And again, on a regional basis, more extensive warming has experienced in, with significant trends in January, March, April, and June. So it tends to be more in the winter and spring periods rather than the summer. Precipitation data, which is much more difficult to um, uh, certainly project into the future, but in terms of the historical record, indicates a generally declining trend during the months of November to February. 30% of the monthly data from 37 stations showing a significant decrease during the uh, period 1949 to 1989. Um, and this was an interesting statistic or finding, although the number of days with precipitation has increased during the last 75 years, more than half of those precipitation days had total amounts of less than five millimeters. And it reminds me a little bit of um, it's almost the opposite in Ontario over the past summer. Uh, last summer, we had 400% more rain than we've ever had before. And yet we had 2% more sunshine in the same month. And you ask yourself, well, how could that be? Because precipitation patterns in Ontario, you see, tend to get thunderstorms. And I don't know to the degree that that um, uh, same statistic applies in the prairies, but my sense is, is that you're going to get um, more, prolonged more prolonged droughts in the prairies, uh, more intense rainfall events, and that pretty well describes precipitation patterns in all regions of the country under climate change. Some of the scenarios that they produced... I think the prairies did the same as Ontario. They had seven different climate change models, seven different emission scenarios, 49 different runs of precipitation and temperature changes, looking at the grassland versus forest, so north versus south. For 2020, 2050, and 2080, as you go from top to bottom, and I think what's important in looking at this scatter plot is to recognize that the consistency and the consensus amongst the 2020 period relative to the 2050s, and then as things begin to get much wider and broader by the 2080s, much more uncertainty as we looked into the future. Nonetheless, if we look at the means for each of those, we're looking at about a two-degree change in temperature by the 2020s, uh, three degrees by the 2050s, and upwards of four and a half by the 2080s, and I think that's fairly significant given our historical record. It's also variable from a seasonal perspective. Not surprisingly, it's greatest in the wintertime, um, uh, less so in the uh, summer and the fall, 
and uh, it's also fairly high in the spring. So what are some of the key findings? And I just want to highlight those and then talk a little bit about adaptation as I conclude. Increases in water scarcity represent the most serious climate risk, and that really shouldn't come as any surprise in the context of summer stream flows, uh, lake levels, retreating glaciers, and the chronic soil and surface water deficits that tend to dog this part of the country. Um, water management and conservation will continue to enable adaptation to climate change and variability. True, uh, certainly that's been very much part and parcel of adaptation in Alberta over the last 40 years, um, but it remains to be seen how far that will be uh, pushed to its limit, particularly as water levels decline, uh, particularly from retreating glaciers um, and uh, stream flows from the mountains. Productivity gains are often cited uh, by uh, those who try to present a more positive view of climate change impacts uh, because of CO2 enrichment or longer growing seasons or warmer or hotter, uh, greater heat units. But these could easily be offset by available soil moisture, infestation of pests and the like. And there's also concerns from groundwater and uh, scarce water resources how economic and population growth could be constrained certainly is a factor when it comes to the oil sands development. I'm often asked, what is the future of the oil sands? And I often think it would be water will dictate its future much more significantly than any changes in government policy. Just a couple of graphs or diagrams, rather, that I pulled out from a pollution probe workshop on water um, uh, back in 2006 looking at the moisture deficit from 61 to 1990 and how that could become even more severe by 2050. So I don't want to uh, attribute that to the Prairie study, although essentially the message is consistent with that. Um, ecosystems will be impacted by shifts in bioclimate, change disturbance regimes for insects and fire, uh, including uh, stresses on aquatic habitats and, of course, the uh, pervasive invasive species the introduction of non-native plants and animals. And I think what's interesting in terms of looking at this particular diagram, which I actually don't find particularly useful in the sense that trees and grasslands don't really migrate particularly well, and that changes in climate and temperature and, and precipitation patterns will be much more rapid than what trees can migrate, um, has severe implications, certainly for aboriginal uh, economies, uh, as well as for resource-based uh, communities that are based on ecological services, such as uh, forestry uh, primarily and to some degree on agriculture. But it has severe implications, I think, for ecosystem management. Pollution Probe organized a national conference on the state of science of forest carbon management back in December, and I've long been troubled by the notion that we should be trying to preserve our boreal forests by putting a fence around them. And that's a view that's promoted by a number of environmental groups. And as a climate scientist, I'm afraid I have to say, what a ridiculous strategy. And that trying to preserve something that is going to be under constant stress, a threat to forest fire and pest infestation, mountain pine beetle in the west and spruce budworm in the east ain't going to cut it. And that, interesting that at this workshop, we had someone who came up and said, trees can't migrate. Forest fire risk is going to increase. These forests are basically doomed. In its conclusion, this is actually a um, reviewer to a uh, report by Greenpeace, got up and said, but I recommend uh, putting a fence around our forests. I said, well, how can you say that? He says, because human record if you look at cod, if you look at a number of other resources, we're terrible. So we may as well leave it up to Mother Nature and put our faith in God and hope it all works out. And I'm sort of sitting back. I got real difficulty with that kind of an approach. So I just appreciate that it's a conundrum. It is a challenge. There are no easy answers in terms of how to move forward in terms of ecosystem management. The prairies are losing some advantages of a cold winter. As mentioned, the mountain pine beetle is proliferating. I've already seen evidence of it in, in Alberta forests. I wouldn't be surprised if it does eventually fully make its way across the Rockies and, and across the boreal forests. Implications for winter roads. 
which northern communities are very much dependent on and are costly in terms of alternatives. Uh, resources and communities are sensitive to climate variability. We know that. We are going to see more frequent drought uh, and, ironically, also increased precipitation in the form of rain and higher probability of severe flooding. When Tom and Jim and I were doing our research back in 1993 to 1995, uh, we'd gone through the drought of the mid-'80s to 1988, one of the biggest on record. And then when we were doing our research with Mount Pinatubo, we had rain and very cool, wet summers for two years. And it sort of put our research on drought and drought response in a very quirky perspective. Uh, nonetheless, in 2001, 2002, we had $3.6 billion less agricultural production. And how that demonstrates that farmers are well adaptable to what climate throws at them defies explanation. I don't understand that when you have such a variation in agricultural uh, productivity. When I was here in 1995, I had the opportunity to live through the drought, sorry, the flood of the century. And 10 years later, apparently, you had another flood of the century. So I think these kinds of events are going to become more frequent, certainly as in the case in Ontario and obviously here in southern Alberta as well. Adaptive capacity, though high, and certainly it is so in Alberta, in Ontario, and many parts of Canada, is nonetheless unevenly distributed. It varies across regions, varies across sectors, varies across communities, that the levels of vulnerability are unevenly and geographically uh, dispersed. Adaptive capacity will be challenged also by projected increases in climate variability and the frequency of extreme events, which everyone seems to be interested in knowing and very uh, little certainty can be done in terms of climate modeling to um, specifically predict or project when extreme events will occur. And lastly, adaptation process is not well understood. Generally, adaptation studies, or rather climate studies, do not generally address adaptation. And Tom and I were talking earlier this afternoon about how the work we had done with Jim and others in 1995 was actually on the forefront of adaptation research and put University of Lethbridge and the research station on the map in this, that regards. And yet our understanding of adaptation hasn't significantly improved uh, since then. The role of institutions and civil society will be very important in terms of how well we adapt. And while there are uh, fortunately some examples of adaptations uh, in many aspects of Alberta society, uh, a lot more uh, adaptation is required a lot of gaps remain. Just some tables I wanted to pull out in closing. Uh, some of the issues that are raised in the Prairie chapter that raises questions about adaptive capacity, looking at various strengths and weaknesses and a number of determinants of adaptation, uh, economic resources, technology, information and skills, infrastructure, institutions, and how they vary across the province. And it's interesting that the Ontario chapter chose a variation of the same table as we tried to describe the uneven landscape for adaptive capacity in that province. It applies here in, uh, in Alberta and other provinces as well. Here in Ontario, uh, whoops, um, or back in Ontario, what we tried to do is to look at the difference between urban centers and rural communities in terms of differences in strengths and limitations of adaptive capacity. I would argue the same thing can and should be applied to Alberta, to Manitoba, to Saskatchewan. I, I think it would make an interesting master's or PhD thesis uh, for anyone who wanted to pursue that. Um, again, from the lessons from Ontario, looking at some of the broad characteristics of adaptive capacity within subregions, we broke up Ontario into three separate areas in the north, the central, and the south. And again, looking at those same factors, determinants, of economic resources, technology, information and skills, infrastructure and institutions that determine adaptive capacity and how they vary across the province. So just not between rural and urban areas, but in different regions, in different sectors. These are the kinds of questions we need to be asking. These are the types of analysis we need to undertake. Now, I often show a graph, and I did so this afternoon, uh, at U of L that looked at the complexity 
of climate and adaptation through the energy sector in Ontario. And I came across a comparable graph diagram in the Prairie chapter that looks at changes in climate attributes and the impacts about, uh, on the adaptation process for agriculture. And I'm obviously not going to go through that, but it just sort of demonstrates the challenges we face as researchers in this area and as people trying to provide some coherent advice to the agricultural community on what they need to take into account, whether or not it's global economy, whether or not it's what Cargill down the road is doing, whether or not there's a mad cow crisis in Montana, or whether or not it's prolonged drought, all the different variables that can actually affect our adaptive capacity and our viability. And I'll just sort of provide a little anecdote. I can't name names. I sit on the Ontario expert panel to advise uh, Minister Gerritsen and Premier McGuinty on climate adaptation, and I had a deputy minister who sadly did not get it, and I had the pleasure, I'll say pleasure, of telling him so during a session of ministers or deputy ministers with the panel. And he got up there and he said, you know, I think this expert panel has got adaptation all wrong. He says, you're losing sight and uh, losing trust of the entrepreneurial and creative spirit of Ontario entrepreneurs to deal with anything the global economy and climate can throw at them. And I thought, geez, you know, say that when there wasn't the loss of 120,000 jobs in the last six months, you're clearly smoking something that I'd like a part of. Quentin, can you I'm tidy up? up. So the role of institutions and policy are really important as part of a strategy forward. Uh, Pollution Probe commissioned a report by Rob DeLoe, a former Canada Research Chair on Climate and Water uh, at the University of Guelph on mainstreaming climate change to drinking water source protection planning in Ontario, raises some interesting questions. What are the most vulnerable sectors and regions? Where can current adaptation be enhanced? And where can adaptation be mainstreamed into long-term decision-making and planning? The one thing the Ontario Expert Panel is doing, and I give the Government of Ontario A-plus grades, is that through that panel, we've had a parade of deputy ministers and assistant deputy ministers and directors come through that panel over the past year and articulate, even though some of them articulated very poorly, their understanding of impacts, their understanding of adaptation, and what their ministries are doing to mainstream adaptation into the long-term planning. And I would encourage every province, including Alberta, to follow the route of Ontario. So here it is at the end, one way forward. And this was something that was actually advocated by Pollution Probe and of all people, a study that was undertaken in Wapool Island in southern Ontario, the only First Nations study on climate change impacts that was funded by NRCAN for Ontario. Four things to consider. Much greater stakeholder engagement, and I think it's critical in terms of engaging the research community like U of L and others in identifying research priorities, assessing the effectiveness of current adaptation actions to future conditions, and determining the most appropriate response actions. I'd say we have, as Ian Burton has said many times, uh, one of the fathers of adaptation in Canada, we have an adaptation deficit in this country, that we're not really adapting as $3.6 billion lost productivity demonstrates to current weather very well, let alone climate change. We need much better monitoring surveillance systems in order to determine what the long-term trends are and how effective our adaptation measures uh, are actually um, um, delivering. Much better in the way of education, of informing the public, such as talks like this, and I applaud SACPA for or organizing the event, um, to have better awareness of adaptation and adaptation challenges, and partnership building in terms of determining what role of government, what other organizations and agencies and members of civil society need to be engaged on this issue to find win-win outcomes in terms of enhancing adaptive capacity. So for more information, I would direct you on the NRCAN report to check out their website, download the appropriate chapters or the full report, uh, I'll let you worry about how to access the Health Canada one. You can send them an email, 
and they'll probably send it to you on CD. And I would like to conclude my talk on a more positive note and quote Sir Winston Churchill. There was someone I met on a uh, plane to Hong Kong uh, last month who heard about the work I was doing, and he scribbled this down. He gave it to me, and I tracked it down online. I thought, great, what an upbeat way to talk more positively about adaptation and addressing climate change. So the era of procrastination of half measures of soothing and baffling expedience of delays is coming to a close. In its place, we are entering a period of consequences to Winston Churchill in 1936, and we all know where that led to. Um, and then I discovered that Al Gore actually said it in an inconvenient truth in 2005. So I thought, well, okay, so I'm not the first person to apply this to climate change, but if I can be in the company of Al Gore, uh, I'm certainly not going to complain. Thank you very much. Thank you.